Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Because he has a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. <laughs> Monday, February 13th, 2012, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am Matthew Zachary, a 15-year young adult, sorry, 16-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Lisa Bernhard, 16-year young adult breast cancer survivor. And we're your host for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay. Not okay. That 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show is all about expressing yourself. We've got Sue Glader. She is a young adult survivor of breast cancer, and she is the author of the children's book, Nowhere Hair. Jennifer Aiden, she's a young adult co-survivor, and she is a national singer-songwriter, wrote a big hit for Blake Shelton. She'll tell us all about that. And in the spotlight, Elizabeth Eppelsheimer. She's a young adult breast cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation online at stupidcancer.org. We are not your father's cancer society, and we are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs. So, welcome aboard. Now, the fun, fun, and exciting romp to the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show where remission is not a cure, and survivorship is all that matters. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And as a final reminder, the Stupid Cancer Show has a live interactive chat room during each and every broadcast. We invite you to join in the fun, connect with friends, and ask questions of our guests at stupidcancershow.com right now. And here we are, folks. Welcome here we back. are, Matthew. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you? I am well. How are you? I am very well indeed. Yes. You look all warm in that, that hoodie thing you're wearing. I'm roasting. It's 9,000 degrees in here. Is it's that, like the opposite of Sullivan Theater. That's right. Is that a performance fleece from Old Navy? <laughs> Everything about this is the opposite of the Ed Sullivan Theater because David Letterman's in that theater yes. and he's not here. <laughs> and this that is would, us. That would be the opposite. Yes. Hello, yeah. Kenny Kane. How are you? What's going on? Kenny Kane, VP Operations, Dr. Reverend James Manning. How are you, sir? Doing well, Matt. How are you? Good. And we have a very special guest tonight. If I am stupid cancer, then she is definitely 
stupid lupus. Please welcome Christine Mizrandino of ButYouDon'tLookSick.com. Love that name. Christine. Hey, everybody. Nice. Stupid lupus. That really works well. I just made that up, but the, yeah. The Stew Lou. Stew Lou. It kind of rhymes. Yeah. It's like Twisted Sister. Exactly. Stupid lupus. Except Dee Snyder is a female um, instead of a man looking you, like you a female. To, you need to get a motorcycle. She, look, she looks a lot better than Dee Snyder. Much better than Dee Snyder. Oh, thank you. That's not really a compliment, <laughs> That's though. Not, no. Don't thank me too much. Yeah. I take my compliments where I can get them. A worm looks better than Dee Snyder. So yeah. we, we, Christine has been in the office. But she, she looked lovely. Visit, uh, she met Kenny a year ago, and um, they became quick friends. And she, he uh, invited her to the office, and I convinced her to stay for the show. But she's got a great story because everything that she uh, talks about with her issues having, uh, I don't know if you call it surviving lupus or living with lupus or whatever it is, are pretty much identical to any issues young adults face with chronic diseases. And we've yeah. done two shows called All Young Adult Chronic Diseases Suck because the issues of insurance and fertility and family planning and intimacy and relationships and dating and, and uh, employment, careers, you know, they're all the same because it sucks enough to be 22 and just getting your bearings on your life, throw any chronic disease on top of that mix, and boom, these are all lifestyle issues that we share that no one really understands because we're so young and most people who get sick are so old. Is that fair? Very fair. I think people, most of the time there's a pediatric unit, and then there's the adult unit. Right. And right. what happened to the 20-something unit? <laughs> yeah, damn straight. And, and we met on chroniciseasematch.com. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's our new adventure. <laughs> chroniciseasematch.com. Wow. How, ma- how many young adults are affected by lupus? They say um, over 2 million. Um, but what happens is is that people are not getting diagnosed because they say that... 2 million a year. A year. Wow. Newly diagnosed patients. We're going to run out of people in about 50 years. Seriously. And what's happening, though, is that people are getting the wrong diagnosis, and actually the median is that you get diagnosed with the wrong thing five times before you get lupus. So that means you're getting treated for the wrong thing five times. Unreal. Well, that's another somewhat similarity that we have in common, of getting misdiagnosed. Right. Yeah. Five times, though. Oh, yeah, I've had tons of stuff. <laughs> I've had it all. Yeah. But, uh, no, you haven't had cancer. Yeah. No, that's true. I have not had knock on, someone knock on some wood. But, uh, no, it's so many of the feelings or the tips, and that's what Matt and I were talking about, so many of the tips and tricks and where do I buy a wig. I was on chemo for lupus. Not many people know that. Did not know that. But I, Interesting. I, I was just as bald as anyone else on chemo. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> And it sucked. So um, through Internet community, it really, it's the feelings and it's the strategy and it's the, you know, how to lug a big bag of uh, medicine and pills and still look cute, you know, with your outfit. Is that uh, standard protocol to treat somebody with uh, chemo for lupus? No, I was special. Of course. (laughs) Um, We can't tell. We can tell that. (laughs) I know. I've had lupus for 18 years, so unfortunately... Since they have no other medication for lupus, and up until last March, they had no treatments whatsoever, I grew immune to anything they were giving me. So I was actually in a wheelchair and couldn't walk, and they had nothing else to do. They had no ace, you know, ace in the hole. They had nothing. nothing what what age was this for for you when this happened? Uh, when two, when you were in the wheelchair that you're talking about now? Yeah, two years ago. Wow. And I looked up that... Um, you look great for a cripple. Wait, I can't use that word. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I realized that um, I did my own research and my own patient advocacy, and I looked online that if you're given the chemo, the chemo attacks the lupus, and the lupus would stop attacking me. And they said, you don't want to do that, you don't want to do that, it could cause you chances of cancer and, and everything else under the sun, legal, 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 legal. Including sunburn if she did it in Miami. <laughs> sure. So then I, I said, wait, I, I already lost my legs. Like, like, let's give it a shot. Bring, bring on the chemo. And thank God I did because it worked. There you go. Unreal. That gets one of these. That, that gets one of these. Yay! Hooray for lupus and chemo. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's so much common ground. And, and, and Colleen O'Neill, who worked for us, she has lupus, and she's a cancer survivor. And many cancer survivors who have immune diseases because of their chemo wind up getting chronic conditions like lupus and um uh what what what's the you mentioned like three Sjogren's Sjogren's another one fibromyalgia Fibro, yeah these are all side Cones. effects of not dying from cancer but you can still have them without having cancer and then be predisposed to cancer because you have them so it's So like, now that you're post chemo I'm interested what is your daily kind of maintenance um, well, I'm on a new drug called Benlista, and I have to go for an IV infusion, yay, um, once a month, but it keeps me healthy, so I'm fine with that. And um, on a daily basis, though, I take 17 pills a day. Nice. And But that's that's good. Like, yeah. No, like, no joke. That's half of what I used to take two years ago. So wow. So I'm, I'm sitting pretty. I, I can walk. Is one of them Centrum? No. <laughs> we, I didn't count that. All right, 18. <laughs> 18 bills. It's one of them Xanax. No, it's Centrum that's Silver. Oh, that's Centrum Max. Silver. Hey, are you calling me old? Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I do think that so many are related, like he said, because, I mean, I joke that, you know, when lupus comes to the party, it brings its friends. So, <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you do get the showgrins. You do get, you know, the hair loss. You do get all these weird, But the insurance things. companies won't cover anything because it ain't cancer. Right. I, I I was told I can't get chemo because I didn't have cancer, so right. we had to pay that out of pocket and then fight it because you're not going to wait to fight it when you're losing feeling in your legs. Sure. Um, I've been Did told, you win? Did they cover yes, it? Yes. yes. Woo! Brockovich for lupus. Great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, we, you know, lupus isn't very well known, and so many medications, even the new one that I'm on that literally is life-altering, Many, many insurance companies do not cover, so very few people are on it, even though it was FDA approved in March. I'm really sensing a stupid lupus spinoff show. No, I, I, we were kibitzing Weak, about weekly. that, and for the, the non-Yiddish out there, kibitz means uh, sp- uh, shooting the shit. I used kibitz today, too. Did you really? And was called on it. Yes. Isn't that a dog food, kibitz and bits? Yes, it is. Okay. For, only for Jewish dogs. Right. You know, it's funny. I want to. Um, I'm going to pull this up on IMDb. There was a movie. You know, we always we always joke that Terms of Endearment is the worst cancer film of all time because right. it, it, it positions that you're all dead and dying. There was a movie in like I gotta be in like the mid '90s, and it was called I think it was called Grey's Anatomy or, or something like that. Uh, before the the TV show, of course, Matthew Modine was in it with Daphne Zuniga. And it, their professor... Two great stars of the I 80s. Love, I love how you can't remember my phone number, <laughs> but you remember, like, these obscure movies. Daphne Zuniga. Right. Comes to mind like no, that in rem- a flash. No, hang on a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna have to find her. I'm partially Here. offended. Um, <laughs> I need to find that. I'm on IMDb. I have to find this movie. It was in the mid-90s. Only partially, yeah. Um Oh, God, I'm not going to find this movie. Gross Anatomy, 1989. Oh, yeah, Gross Anatomy. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Gross Anatomy, uh, they play college students, med students, and one of the teachers that they don't like gets lupus and dies. 
and like I immediately associate lupus with death because of that movie. It's the terms of endearment of your world. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's that movie. Gross Anatomy. It's Thank you. Gross Anatomy. <laughs> And then on, a, I forget what soap opera, but a famous soap opera, not only does she die, but man, does she die very dramatically. Well, then, she's got to have a big death scene. Yeah, so right. either you die or it's never lupus on House MD. <laughs> right. Uh, so, so it's either you don't have it or you're going to die from it right. from, in TV land. But actually, it's very weird. On Royal Pains, I guess it's USA Network, I yep. guess, uh-huh. um, he diagnosed his friend the golfer um, with lupus. So I'm following it right now. It's kind of interesting where they're where they're taking it because for the first time they didn't um, make it dramatic and they didn't pretty it up. So right. it's, I'm actually very kind of proud of them for being realistic about it. Oh, good. Nice. So this could be the first uh, lupus storyline with real street cred. Uh, absolutely. I got people for you to meet. Remind me to remind me later to talk about Hollywood Health and Society. Okay. I will forget already. I already forgot about it. But yeah. remind me to talk to you about how me to too. I got my ke- I got my chemo Friday. I can't think of anything. Right, you got a fog that. here. Well, all right. So, like, basically the young adult lupus movement is kind of where we were, like, five years ago. And they're finally starting to get their bearings. And I'm really excited about this because I think it just helps the whole stupid disease movement. I just made that up, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> stupid <laughs> well, disease. Well, really a stretch. See, we can't call it stupid chronic because that would be associated with something potentially different. Right. Yes. That 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 chronic. That chronic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's get to our first guest. She's been patiently waiting on the phone here. Um, Elizabeth. I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Eppelsheimer. That's a handful. Sounds good to me. She graduated summa cum laude from Mount Ida College and was well established in her professional career, having accepted a director of sales position with a luxury bridal couture designer. My old job. Yeah. April 1st, 2009, at the age of 28, she was diagnosed with stage. 3B, triple negative breast cancer, hoping to inspire and encourage fellow cancer survivors. Elizabeth began sharing her story through motivational speaking and volunteering with the American Cancer Society, the Young Survival Coalition, and I'm Too Young with this Cancer Foundation. I That's know those right. people. She's now cancer-free, looks forward to pursuing her passions, including legal studies, NASCAR, my favorite hobby, travel, sports, and fitness. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you. How are you? Boston represent, right? Absolutely. All the way. Wicked cool. Now, I first Love came it. upon you because you were written up in a local Boston paper. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, tell I us how that came. You, yeah, you were flashing. You were out there with a NASCAR, looking like a NASCAR babe. There was a great photo. How did that come about? Um, well, NASCAR has been part of my cancer adventure ever since. Well, actually, before that, and then it actually really became a really big passion of mine when I was going through my cancer treatment. It was the way I really dealt with all of the negativity that was being put upon me. Um, And so it's like anything you do in life. When you get really involved in something, you get to know people. And it just happened to be at the opportunity when I was at Loudoun, um, which is New Hampshire Motor Speedway, um, we were just talking to security, and I'm hanging out there with my stepdad and we're just having a good old time. We're like, you know, can we take a couple pictures on the track? And they're like, absolutely. So we went out there and we took a few pictures. Um, they actually just laid a new piece of granite down on the start-finish line there. Um, so they were pretty proud that they had done that for that race. So you were, all right, so tell us your story. You uh, were 28 2009 and yep. diagnosed. So how did you first, uh, did you feel a lump yourself? How did you first find out about your, get your diagnosis? 
Um, well, I would have to say, like most young survivors out there, they have diagnosed me several times over and over again. Um, it was back actually in 2008. I was a caregiver for both my mom and my father who had been going through breast and prostate cancer, and I wasn't feeling well, and I was under a tremendous amount of stress. And so I kept going to the doctor and saying, I'm fatigued all the time, or I have this chronic cough, and I just did not feel well. And um, they would look at me and say, oh, you're perfectly healthy, you're fine, why don't you go talk to a therapist or something and were you the for your sole, stress? were you the sole caregiver for both of your parents who were ill at the time? For the majority, yes. Wow. And I was also the director of sales for a wedding gown manufacturer based in Toronto, and so I had the responsibility of traveling to a new city every single weekend, opening up new clients. Um, Did you say yes to the new... dress? No, but I know the people who are on that show. Okay. <laughs> I had to ask the question because it's my wife's favorite show. The what? It's my wife's favorite show. It's a guilty pleasure. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's a good show. And what goes on on that show is what truly happens every single day in a bridal shop. You definitely get the mothers coming in who don't like the dress that the bride has fallen in love with, and then you have the drama of the sister who's jealous and so everything that to go. Did you find working? Then did you find that like to be like an like escapist from what you were dealing with in real life? Sounds stressful. The job? No, yeah. I had to leave the job because of the amount of stress. Um, like I said, the year two thousand eight, it was just insane. My mother was diagnosed with the breast cancer. In spring, my father was diagnosed with prostate in the fall, and like I said, I was feeling really, really, really ill, and um, so I had to step down from the position. I had some money saved. I said, I'll figure this out. Maybe I'll feel better after a few months of just sort of trying to recoup from everything, and um, I was laying in bed, and I was reading a book, and it fell on my chest, and I said, ouch, like, kind of like, ooh, and... um, I felt this little lump, and it was about the size of a dime, and that was January of 2009. Okay. I go on the Internet, I look around, and I'm like, what's going on? And um, they're like, well, with your age, it's kind of finicky. Maybe you should just wait a few weeks. It kind of gives you that suggestion. Why don't you wait a few weeks and, you know, check, you know, see what goes on with the lump. Well, the only thing that happened with that lump was it grew from the size of a dime to a quarter. And how long did that take? I mean, um, about a, like literally three weeks. Wow. So okay. It so was, I it go was... into the. Go ahead. Sorry. So I go to my primary care doctor, and um, she feels the lump, and she goes, "You need to go for a mammogram and ultrasound." And because of my history, they said you need to go immediately. So they lined me up with um, the same facility that my mom had gone to, and I went in for the mammogram and an ultrasound. And the doctor looked at me and told me, "You don't have cancer." gave me a letter that said, you don't have cancer. He felt my powerful lump, and he sent me home. I'm sorry, and this was, you you got the mammogram and sonogram, or you did not? I did. You did. Like, and that, in and February after, of 2009. And after getting both, and they had read both of them, you got a letter saying that you don't have cancer? They officially gave it to me right then and there when I left the facility. Had anybody looked at the film? <laughs> yeah, right. Any yeah. radiologist on staff there? Yeah. yeah. No, the radiologist doctor um, that was covering that, like that the department at that point in time had read the films. He came in, um, and what was the issue was that the the tech who was actually trying to do the ultrasound 
could feel the lump, but she couldn't read it on the screen. Well, you know, but, this is this is this happens also, you know, very frequently with young women who have denser breasts. I mean, if those, you know, the ultrasound and the mammograms are not always entirely reliable because they are hard to read when you have dense breasts at a young age, which could have been the case for you. I don't know if anybody mentioned right. that and, to you, and but I, yeah. We don't know exactly what why it doesn't make it it just doesn't make any sense um in terms of Many things that went on because then after that I went back to my primary care and she said, "Well, don't worry about it." So when She's did you like, finally go back and get the diagnosis? Did it just keep growing? I'm assuming it did. Yeah, it was the size of a plum five weeks later. Wow. Was, um, into my and what this is and it, the thing was I had an appointment with the breast surgeon six weeks later, and this lump was growing so rapidly and inside my breast, and I um, had gone back to my doctor twice without an appointment, and I said, this thing just keeps growing inside of me. What can we do? She's like, well, I'll try to get you to have an MRI, but I can't really get that to happen. And so my insurance company denied me an MRI. Lovely. And, uh, yeah, and I have that letter as well. <laughs> Did you bronze um, it? I you bronze <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It may be a platinum along with the other one. These are worse than, like, you know, rejection letters from college. It's like rejection breast cancer letters. You do not have breast cancer, but you'd think that they These would be happy. These are not the droids you're looking right. for. <laughs> it, it's really hard because, like, like I said, you would go you go into your doctors and you, and you can tell them, I'm not feeling well or this is what's going on with me or whatever it may be. And they just look at you and they just don't know what to tell you. They don't think you're old enough to have cancer. They don't, you know, it just yeah. doesn't, so it now does it's not the, cross the horizon. So now it's the size of a plum. Okay, so when the hell does somebody finally say to you, yes, you do have cancer? So um, two days before April 1. Um, April Fool's. So, yeah, exactly. You do have cancer. <laughs> April Fool's. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was... It, it was very, very quick when everything happened eventually. So two days before that, my mother and oh, so I was on the couch, and at that point I couldn't even lift a laundry basket. My arm was in so much pain. I couldn't do anything on that side any longer. My mother said, I'm calling the breast surgeon tomorrow. We're seeing her. And I said, okay. And because she was a patient there, she called and said, hi, this is Ingrid, and my daughter needs to be seen today. I don't care. So, um, yep, we went in, and... Um, the doctor, you know, was looking at the images, and then she looked at me, and she goes, well, let me do a, the breast exam, and she does the breast exam, and I just saw her face drop, and I was just like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> There's, like, no other way to put it. And she looked at me, and she goes, normally we would not do um, a biopsy without it being without being able to read it on an image. She goes, there's really no point in bringing in the tech to try to read this on the ultrasound. Um I'm just going to go in for a blind biopsy. It's big enough. I'm not going to miss it. Yeah. So she went in. She did the needle point. She did the core. Um, she said, I'm sending you off for an MRI. Um, so that was on a Monday. Wednesday morning I was in um, for my MRI, the contrast. And then that Wednesday night around 7 o'clock she called me to let me know that I um, my cancer was had spread so far into my muscle wall and had gone into my lymph nodes that it was too large to operate on and that I would have to do chemotherapy first. Wow. The following, uh, two days later, I met with the oncologist at the hospital, and um, she looked at me, and her first words out of her mouth were, I'm not going to let you die. Oh. 
<laughs> and I looked at her and I said, "What are you talking about? What do you What do you mean death?" <laughs> Pardon me. Yeah. We, we have again. survivors right. in the what room right here. They're fine. <laughs> what you know? And those those words were never mentioned to them, really. Yeah. So I got really. It, it was it was really scary. And she's like, "We just don't know what type of cancer you have. We have to do all these tests. You're going to come in the following Friday to start chemotherapy." And um, and when you read all my doctor's notes, she basically said we've. They're going to treat Elizabeth as if she was a stage four patient. They put in a port. They did the whole nine yards because they didn't really know exactly how things were going to be. Um, so you went through the chemo, and then what would your sur- what what was so your surgery? I did, so I did um, atromycin. I had four treatments of that, hmm. and uh, the cytoxins, the AC, and then I did twelve treatments of Taxol weekly. Hmm. Um, it significantly worked on my tumor. And um, then I chose to do a bilateral mastectomy right. and have um, delayed reconstruction. Yeah. And I had 21 lymph nodes removed at that point in time. Um, then I had six weeks of radiation thereafter. And now, most likely in April, I'll be going down for my fourth surgery for reconstruction. I'm very, very, very lucky that I didn't have any complications. Um, in terms of chemotherapy or the radiation, like things there in that department, once things got going, right. didn't have many issues. Like I didn't really, I mean, I was sick, but I it wasn't to the point where they would have to stop treatment. Right. Um, at I any Elizabeth, at, at any point in time during this process, were you at all introduced to other young breast cancer survivors, or or young adult survivors at all, or were you in like this age bubble? Oh. I was very much in a bubble for, I would say, the first four to five months um, going through my treatment. Um, Basically, because of what happened with the hospital, um, I was sort of treated with the the VIP status. I mean, when I came in, I was put in my own room. You know, I had my own private nurse giving my chemotherapy. Um, The doctors just had to become very attentive because I really had to demand that from them. I told them they made a mistake. I told them that there was probably other options that they could have done in terms of trying to figure out what was wrong with me, and no one was listening. And um, and so they really took that seriously. And I didn't really know where to go or what to do. And um, I kind of went on the YSC boards a little bit just to sort of see what other patients were doing in terms of reconstruction and stuff like that, especially when you have to have radiation. It's yeah. a little confusing. That's Young Survival Coalition for right. uh, for the audience. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, what was that? Yeah, we're just clarifying a Young Survival uh, Coalition. Oh, are, sorry. We're good, good pals of ours. They were just on last week, in fact. <laughs> yeah, they're great. And um, they, were probably, they were the first organization that I really opened myself up to and started getting very much involved in and started doing different activities with them. In terms of I'm too young for this, I actually was had gone to Barnes & Noble and I read the book Everything Changes. Oh, and I found out yeah. about you, right. Matthew. So when I was reading that book, I and it, the, just the way that you talk about different ways of dealing with cancer and how I was really angry in it. that book. I was really angry in that book. But yeah, he's mellowed now, angry. if you can believe that. I'm on good meds now. Yeah, we up to Xanax. <laughs> <laughs> From so, that's how you came to, so that's how you came to know us um, through uh, Carol Rosenthal's book. 
um, which is great. And so how's everybody now? So how are your parents? Are they, and because and then who became, did, were they able to take care of you then? Yes. I mean, it, it's hard because you have um, sick people taking care of sick people. Yeah. Um, we all, like I said, we were all living in this house and it was absolutely chaotic and, you know, we were in crisis all the time because, we were going from one ailment to another. Um, my mother also, throughout all of this, had to have a hip replacement surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot going on in the Apple family. So it was family. a lot going on. So it was just, you had to live for the moment. Like I said, like with the whole entire NASCAR thing, I mean, I, I just got involved. I had a great opportunity to work for um, a small independent retail chain. The manager absolutely loved me, so I would go in for a chemo treatment on, say, on a Wednesday, and then I would go and work for a few days in a row. Then I would do another chemo treatment, and then I would go to a NASCAR race. I would just get out of Dodge and have a good time with all the friends and family that I had. Well, that's great. Um, that's great that you found a way. You kind of found it sounds like you found a rhythm to, a li- to your life to adjust and, and a release, doing something like going to NASCAR. So, um that's great. Well, we wish you we wish you all the best. We unfortunately are running tight on time here, so we're going to yeah. have to wrap. But um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. You're and welcome. Best to you and and your family. Great. And thank we'll, you so much. I really appreciate everything. Keep doing da- the good stuff in Beantown. Come on down to New York yes. and uh, and visit us. Oh, I definitely will. And when you guys come up, let me know. <laughs> will do. Thanks, Elizabeth. All right. Have a all good right. Night. Thank Elizabeth you. Appleheimer, everybody. Good stuff. But she, see, she's the, she is the, not to make it sound like she's archetype, but what she went through is so emblematic of the young adult cancer story, misdiagnosed, not taken seriously. And this treated. thing is growing. Yes. You know, from a dime Just, to a quarter to a plum to she can't lift her arm. Right, and like you'd think you wouldn't have to have had to go to med school to understand that trend, <laughs> biologically growing right. something in your body not yeah. supposed to be there. Yeah, I didn't go to med school, and that makes sense to me that there's something wrong with her. But glad she's here. She's a sounds uh, like she's doing well. She's doing well. Yeah, doing well. She's smart. Uh, NASCAR can't really relate to that, but I I can respect that. It's moved up north, Matthew. That's happened a long time ago. I know. Even it's, the kids in Boston. Oh God. Like it, it. it skipped New York. It a little less so in New York, but you well, know no, there, there were there were rumors of inklings that they were going to build a NASCAR race. Uh, whatever raceway on Staten Island. It's it's weird considering we have the West Side Highway. It's a track. <laughs> it's Man- fun to drive Manhattan on. Manhattan Loop. Yeah. No, I interviewed some ra- some NASCAR drivers actually in Times Square when they came up. Who's that really cute one that everybody loves? Billy Bob, Joe Bob, <laughs> Joe Bob Bob. No, it's not not <laughs> Mary Lou, Peggy Sue. Not, <laughs> not from the Will Ferrell movie. Danica McKellar? No, that she's from um, she's from the Wonder Years. Danica Patrick is the one who's the racer. Right, backed by David Letterman. Yes. Exactly. It all exactly. comes back to David Letterman. All right, let's hit the news here, um, and then Hello, we'll continue I'm our Brockman, conversations. This is I on cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Ooh, dramatic music. Written by you, Matthew? Yes. During this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announced to our listeners a whole bunch of newsworthy programs, events, and services that we don't want you missing out on. And they're all free, and they're all just for young adults affected by cancer, including caregivers, things like conferences, happy hours, retreats, kayaking, and mountain climbing trips, finance webinars, college scholarships, bar calls, concerts, tweet-ups, support groups, and more. 
you have something coming up that you'd like us to talk about during this part of the show, please send us an email to info at stupidcancer.com. All right, check out events.stupidcancer.com, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Stay in the loop, people, because something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we don't want you missing out. What's coming up, KK? There's absolutely nothing coming up. All right. No, <laughs> don't kidding. There's uh, no loop. <laughs> Thursday night, we have a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour in Baltimore. Out in L.A., the We Spark group is having a meetup. And uh, Friday, uh, the 22nd, we have a happy hour here in New York City, followed a week later by the Young Survival Coalition Living Beyond Breast Cancer, C4YW, Breast Cancer Conference in NOLA, Gesundheit. New Orleans, Louisiana. Yes, that was a mouthful. Dot org. Um, End of February, right? Yeah, that's it. That's a good. That's a lot of stuff. Followed a month later by the OMG Summit. Never heard of it. The Stupid Cancer Forums have over 2,500 members actively using it every single day. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit. StupidCancerForums.com today. Sign up with one click through Facebook. All right, it's getting tight, folks. We're running out of slots for Team Stupid Cancer, our official running team for the New York City Half Marathon. How many slots do we have left, Kenny? Uh, less than 10. Less than 10. And filling up daily. Come on, people. Got feet? You don't need them. Feet are optional. With our crew, guaranteed entry for less than 10 people. We want, to, we want to fill all the slots, so get in there. Low fundraising minimums. Help young adults fight stupid cancer. Visit TeamStupidCancer.com for information. And again, as mentioned before, the 5th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is just six weeks away. We have less than 30 spots remaining out of the 500 registered attendees we're planning on having there. It is go time at OMG2012.org. OMG2012.org. Get registered. For the hippest events in all of Cancerland, says us, joined literally 500 of your fellow young adult survivors at the Palms Casino Resort and check out the OMG Players Club, an exciting new fundraising challenge where you could earn up to $600 in travel reimbursement and even a brand new iPod and iPad and MacBook Air. I'd, I'd like an iPad. I'm sure you would. And if you raise 100000 you get <laughs> one of Matthew's children. Yes. What? Yes. My third child, which I won't be having. And that... Is your, your stupid, stupid cancer, cancer news. news? Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to the Stupid Cancer Show. I just wanted that again. There's a, you know, there's a lovely uh, profile of Zach in the new Glamour magazine, something that I don't normally read, but uh, happened to come across, and it's basically Zach's all grown up and he's a man now. Ooh, oh, is he? Yes. Is that how that works? Not a boy. If Glamour declares it, that's when you. It's no longer a bar mitzvah or turning 21. Is if you get a profile in Glamour magazine, they declare you a man. Nice. We're waiting for yours, Kenny. Yeah. Well, one day. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sue? We are going to introduce Sue right now, and she gets some boogie. Oh. You know, I have a sense that this really goes well with Sue. Sue Glader, she writes and lives in Mill Valley, California. That's a lovely part of the country. An award-winning freelance copywriter for companies such as Levi Strauss, HP, GE, Marriott Hotels, and The Economist, Sue was diagnosed with breast cancer with a one-year-old in tow in 1999 when she couldn't find any children's cancer books with a strong, chic-yet-bald mama like she is. She wrote one herself, folks. Nowhere hair. Came out September 2010 from Thousand Words Press. It's a whimsical yet honest uh, book. It's recently one of only two books recommended by the Livestrong Foundation on the topic of talking to children about a parent's diagnosis. Please help us welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Sue Glader. 
Woo-hoo. All right. This has been a long time coming. It has been. It's, it's a year in the making, Sue. Since it I, is a year in the making. Since I saw you. I know. Crazy. And, we, and I did pronounce that correctly, Glader. Is that right? It is. It's okay. true. It's Glader. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for being with us. This well, is a... Um, it's a terrific book. I know you've met you've met Kenny Kane. I think you guys met in person. Are, are you coming Once. back down to uh, C4YW this year? Do you know I'm not. Oh. I'm I'm actually going to be somewhere else that weekend. And and while I was sitting here listening to the whole thing about the summit in Las Vegas, I'm realizing I'm going to miss that again this year. So uh. I know. Oh, you know what I'll do? I'll pack I'll pack my copy Ooh. of Nowhere Hair. Oh, perfect. And I Bring will it. I will wear it around my neck. They ask me about Sue's book. And Las Vegas is just a hop, skip, and a jump from Mill Valley. I know. I know the problem. Well, I'm. I should be on her island. To to speak at something in my relative neighborhood, and I'm all about you know helping people here in my local. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So clearly not about drinking with 500 people. (laughs) Next year. Okay. Next year I'll come. Well, she can do that in Mill Valley. Yes, that is true. That is true. (laughs) Alcohol abounds up there. It's true. We do. We have quite a bit of it. All right, so you have a one-year-old, 1999, and yeah. what happens? Yeah, well, I'm um, I'm driving down the freeway with my kids strapped in the back of the car, and um, I itch under my arm, and I find the proverbial little frozen pea-sized lump, and I'm convinced, you know, I live in Marin, so we think about things this way, but I'm convinced there must be an angel that was looking out for me because this thing was tiny, and, um, you know, I felt it, and it it definitely was an, uh sort of hair on the back of your neck, kind of what is that? And, um, you know, long story short, uh, I, I went in and I had it felt by my OBGYN, and she said, you know, you're young, you're lactating, you're a breastfeeding mother, um, you know, it's probably a plug duck or something like that, and, you know, you don't really need to worry about it, but if you think it's growing, here is a script to go in and get a mammogram. And of course, from that moment on, I was like constantly feeling it, and I was sure that it was growing. And so I went in and I got a mammogram, which was sort of inconclusive. And I said, "There's something there, but we don't know what it is." And then a sonogram. It's like, "Yeah, we are seeing something, but we still don't know what that is." And finally, went and saw um, a breast surgeon at UCSF, and she said, let's, you know, let's do a biopsy. And one of the things that's interesting that I didn't know beforehand is is that, you know, when you get a fine needle biopsy, at least when it happened to me, they had two different physicians do it. So the one physician came in and did one stick, and then she left, and another physician came in and did another one. And on the first, um, the first one came back negative, no cells. And, and so the this second a, one... And this was a needle aspiration, not a core biopsy. Right, right. 1999. Asp- yeah, just a well, do little... you know something about this? <laughs> yeah. And the second one came back positive. And so there's, you know, there's part of me that's like, well, thank God they did it twice, right? Cause, that's, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it, it came back that I was positive for cancer, and it was, you know, stage 2A, and they had some, or B, I don't know, it's been so long, I've tried to, you know, compartmentalize and forget stage about pie, it. Stage pie, stage <laughs> pie. Stage pie. And, um, you know, so I had to do, uh, I didn't have to do, my surgeon was actually sort of on the fence with whether I should needed to do uh, chemo, but it turns out my father-in-law is an oncologist for kids, and so he was like, you're doing the chemo, honey. 
So, yeah. Um, so I did the, you know, the Red Devil cocktail and had a lumpectomy and radiation and tamoxifen and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, it is just going back to that needle aspiration. I mean, it's really true that that's, you know, then they developed the core biopsy, to right. sort of, which was kind of takes out larger chunks because it can go missed in an aspiration because they get so few cells. So, yeah. indeed, thank God they took somebody there thought to take two aspirations. Well, and when, when this different doctor came in with the same sort of gloves on and stuff, and I'm like, really, we're doing this again? And she said, yeah, we always do it twice with two different people. I'm like, wow. all right. That would be the opposite of what happened to Elizabeth. Exactly. You know, I'm si- I, I know. was sitting here and I was listening to her and I was thinking, God, I was smooth, smooth sailing compared. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And you were what, 39 at the time? I was. Th- I was 33. 33. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, oh. and were you freelancing? Were you copywriting? Were you at one job or were you writing for a bunch of different folks at the time? I was. I was basically. You know, I've um, been fortunate that I've sort of made my living as as a freelance writer, copywriter, and so I was writing for a, du- a bunch of different people at the time, you know, just here from my home. And um, and I tried to, you know, keep going because I wanted my life to be as normal as possible, however normal that can be, when yeah. you, you know. And, um, and I had a little, you know, Hans, my son at the time, he was 13 months old, so I was trying to do that as well. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, I'm sort of shocked at how I was able to sort of keep all the balls in the air. Um, but I, you know, I think most young cancer patients will tell you that's, you just, that's just the way you do it, right? You just sort of... Yeah, keep going. You just say, bring it on. And so at what point did you have, so Hans is your son and you had to address this with him, but he was just 18 months at that point. At what point did you have to address it with him and how did you go about it and then let's talk about how that evolved in, into your book yeah um you know fortunately he was too little to have you know major conversations when it was first coming down and i when i when my hair started falling out i was like you know i'm not going to do this bits and pieces at, at a time i'm going to really take the bull by the horns and so i took my husband and my son and we went down to the little local barber and you know they watched as he shaved my head so my son would understand that, you know, one day mom has hair and the next minute she doesn't and what happened. Um, but it really, you know, it wasn't until he was older, older, like, I don't know, maybe like a seven- or eight-year-old that I even sort of broached the discussion with him about what had happened. And, um, you know, it. You know, the show is about self-expression, right? And my whole thing is that I've always tried to portray this in the most positive light I possibly could. I didn't want to hang anything around his head that, you know, oh, my God, my mom had cancer and I need to worry about this, right? So so I've, um, I've, I've never really fully waded into the whole conversation with him. He's 13 now. Um, I smell a bar mitzvah coming this year. <laughs> Mazel tov. Yeah, no, he is. He's he's becoming a um, a little man for sure. Does, does he know like his significance in in making the book? Has he realized like? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, you know, it's interesting because the the character in the book is a little girl. The girl, right. yeah. 
And people say, well, why is that? Don't you have a son? And I said, well, really, this isn't my, it's not my story. It's not a, a you know, autobiographical. It's based on it's a true story. Based on a true, you know, in fact, I, I never really wore all the contraptions that you can put on your head. I was that, you know, bald young person around town because I had this attitude of, if I'm going through it, I want you to see me, right? I, I, In a world where yeah, a you know? loses her hair. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like I live in a in a place where that's not uncommon. Oh, that's a lot of knots. I, I live in a place where that is very common for like quadruple negative. <laughs> <laughs> Did you meet any other mothers along the way who had kids at the same age? Were you on the YSE boards? Was there, was there anything back then in '99? Uh, that that gave you some sense of peer support? Um, no. I No. And in fact, um, I remember being walking into the infusion lab in San Francisco, and at the time it was one of these long kind of, you know, public viewing thing. You walk down to find an open Barca lounger kind of thing. And I, I was just struck by how old everybody was and how young I was, and I actually even said to myself, I'm sure they're looking at me and thinking, oh, thank God I didn't have cancer at her age, you know? Right. Um, but no, I really didn't, um, I don't know, I think I was pretty compartmentalized about it. It was sort of like, okay, I'm dealing with this, I'm going to get through this, and then I'm just going to go on with my life. So maybe there wasn't a whole lot that was out there at the time. I mean, you you guys certainly weren't around, so... Um, so, so tell us too, because I'm also in your bio on your website. You say that you don't like the term survivor, yeah, because that's not you. So, talk about that. <laughs> uh, well, you know the word. Well, I'm a writer, right? So I love words and I fiddle with them a lot, and I really think about what they mean and how they sound and how they feel to me. And there's something about the word survivor that just implies to me that. Um, that it could come back, which I don't like. You've you've survived something, you've endured something, but it's not. It it may be not. It's not conquer. Over. It's not conqueror. Is yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also don't like the idea that people who don't survive somehow have done something wrong, right? Hmm. So you've got the well, I'm a survivor, but this person isn't. So I've never really liked that word. And for a while I tried on the whole thriver word because it was like, okay, it's sort of similar, but, um, and it really is more to how I feel. I'm, you, I'm, you tried on the, the which word, I'm sorry? The thriver word. Oh, thriver. You know, thriver. Okay. Right, right. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's cute because it's close and it rhymes yeah. and all that, but it still doesn't, it didn't, doesn't feel completely right to me. So I've been, yeah. I've been talking about how I like the word aficionado. <laughs> that's my new, huh. that, uh, that you know, I've got a lot of knowledge about this particular topic. Um, Sounds like the cigar magazine, though. Yeah, I know. I, well, you know, it's not exactly right. It's not perfect. Cancer there was aficionado actually, magazine. <laughs> there was a woman very... who, said, who said something about, um, I'm a graduate. Hmm. She considers herself a graduate of cancer. Okay. Like, oh. Like well, that. aficionado is is very upscale. Well, we can go yeah. submit it and be like the cancerite. <laughs> the cancerites. <laughs> yeah, the cancerites. Um, okay. I have to you... ask you. I have to ask you, Sue. Uh, huh. We didn't get to ask uh, Elizabeth because we ran out of time. But as a breast cancer survivor, would you like to weigh in on the Cohen 
debacle of the last couple of weeks? Mm, no. Okay. <laughs> we like the honesty, folks. Maybe everybody's just sick of that at this point. Yeah, uh, well, just, I don't know. It here, doesn't seem the, to go away. Yeah, here's no. the thing. I, um, you know, I've, I think that Komen in, in many cases is that giant elephant in the middle of the room, especially in the world of cancer um, advocacy, I guess, you know, organizations that are working toward helping people. And, you know, it's a tricky one for me because I sit in a place where I'm, the, you know, the whole reason I'm, I'm even on your show and talking about this is because I've decided to take my little, my big experience, my experience, and do something with it and helping help other people. And and I, I don't, I just don't even want to wade in. I just don't okay. Well, you know, let's let's just let's just tell people who um, are not familiar with the book. You touched on it a bit. Talk about this the storyline of the book and how you actually approach telling a child in the book. And, and you mentioned the mom in the book kind of wears different things on her head. But talk us through so folks know exactly how you uh, how you flesh out telling a child in the storyline of Nowhere Hair. Okay. Well, my my whole thing was that I wanted I, I looked for at the time when I was going through this um, twelve years, thirteen years ago. Um, I looked for a book to talk about this with kids and what i found were were books that were very sort of um sad and dreary the colors were really dark and there was a lot of sort of scary imagery and and sadness in them and i i really wanted to offer something that that had a much more sunny outlook toward it not that i think having cancer is sunny by any way shape or form but i really feel like kids especially the younger kids they don't deserve to, you know, have to wallow through all of the abject terror and fear that, that we adults go through. So um, I want, and I also wanted a book that wasn't just for breast cancer people. I didn't want it to be very specific and say, you know, this is what happens. You go to the hospital. This is what chemotherapy looks like because, as we know, it's all different for every single patient. Yeah. So I wanted something extremely high level. Um, non-cancer specific, and I really wanted to touch on the issues that are, at least to me, most important to kids. It's like, oh, my God, did I do something to make it happen, right? right. Fighting with my sibling, not eating my peas, whatever. Right. Did I do this? No, you didn't, obviously. Um, can I catch it? Which, because we are, you know, especially the American culture, we're all about germs and wash your hands and, yeah. you know, this is not a catchable kind of thing. And then the other really big one is that, you know, mom is still the same mom that she always was, and she will still love you, and she will still be there for you. She might be a little cranky, she might be a little tired, but um, she's still there for you. And so as much as it is the what you read in the pages, the words, and it's written in rhyme, so it's a, it's a very, um, it's a book that I think kids enjoy reading. Yeah. Um, it's as much... For the woman who is reading it, I, because I wanted her to, to be reminded that she is still beautiful, that she is still powerful, that she's sexy, that she's all of these things that she was before she started cancer treatment and chemo. She just happens to be bald. Yeah, and so, the illustrations, by the way, are, are lovely. Edith, how do you pronounce yeah. her last name? Who did them? Bunin. Bunin. She Terrific is, um, illustration. Bunin. 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 She's from um, uh, the Netherlands. And aren't we so, all? 
a little yeah, bit. Like, oh, aren't those all all the great illustrators out there? No, she she and I worked over the internet. Um, we would send messages back and forth, and and I chose her specifically because her illustrations were so. They were kind of, they weren't kind of, they were powerful, but they were also whimsical and kind of quirky. Yeah. And um, I really wanted that. I, that was sort of the, what I was not seeing out there, and I wanted to make sure that it was a a kid's book. Yeah. At the end of the day, it needs yeah. to be something that a kid wants to sit down and read as much as the mom. Well, we're, 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 I hate to say this, but we're kind of a little bit out of time, running a little late here. But I wanted to just let our crowd know where can they learn about this book, where can they pick up a copy, and if they happen to be in a situation where they feel like you know their cancer center could benefit from having this book, uh, you know, what's the website? Where can they go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, nowherehair.com, and it's nowhere n o w h e r e hair like the stuff on your head. Um, and yeah, it's that, that's chock full of information, and um, it's got my contact information there. I mean, the the best way to get it is is through me, but it's available on Amazon, the other large elephant in the room for most self-published writers. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, it's in about a hundred different cancer centers all over the country, and that's awesome. More every day, so uh, you know, it's an important. The bottom line, at least for me, is it's really important to bring our kids along with this, with us in this whole journey. And and you know, small steps are the best possible way to go at it. And, and this uh, is a young adult issue. You know, when you're 80 absolutely. years old with cancer, you don't have a one-year-old. I mean, if you do, you're Tony Randall, but not really. <laughs> you know, that's very uncommon. Yeah. So the young adult issue is, you know, you have a child and you get cancer, and how do you talk to them about this? And so, yeah. so I, I can't thank you enough for shedding light on this on this situation and you know bringing hope to so many people. And I don't say that as a as a cliche. The book is very significant, and everyone should check it out at nowherehair.com. dot com. Thank you guys. All right, and sorry to you miss too. you and Nola. Yeah, we won't. See I you know. I, I swear to you, I will. I will see you sometime this next year. I don't know where it will be. Maybe I'll just come into your offices in New York and surprise. Say hello. That's a date. That'd be great. Okay. Right on. Okay, you guys, thanks so much. All right. Thank later, you, everybody. Uh, all right. So let's get right to our next guest here. All right, Jennifer. We'll have to see if, you know, she's a, she's a big-time songwriter. We're going to have to see if she approves of this song. Well, it's cancer and bad medicine, right? I know. That's our theme. Jennifer Aiden's journey began in San Mateo, California. Sort of a hop, skip, and a jump from where Sue is, kind of, right? When she was 10 years old, during a fifth-grade history class, Jennifer secretly wrote her first song, unaware that it could lead to a career. Five years ago, she made the cross-country move to Nashville, away from her family, in order to chase her down her dream. Now she has celebrated the success of a number one hit for Blake Shelton. Blake Shelton, we just saw him on the Grammys last night, hosted one of the hosts of The Voice. She wouldn't be gone. Jennifer wrote that song, gosh darn it. Most recently, she had her song, Don't Come Home, featured in MTV's The Real World San Diego, as the final episode of that show. She has a title track on uh, the new Medicine album, Raise You to the Bottom. She's going to come on and talk about how, and we're going to play the songs that she wrote for her, 36, her 38-year-old cousin who passed away from breast cancer, who was pretty much her best friend. Co-survivor, Nashville songwriter Jennifer Aiden, welcome to the show. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. How you so doing? Good to be here. I'm great. How are you guys doing? Welcome to the stupid cancer show. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. We're thrilled to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. It's amazing. I think the story is relevant because, you know, we talk about cancer affecting, you know, uh, you or your spouse or your sibling, but it affects your friends. It affects the rest of your family. And when a young adult takes an interest and and a passion for someone in this age group and really understands what it's like to be, you know, in your 20s and 30s going through this. Can you can you tell us your your cousin's story? Yeah, um well she was diagnosed at the age of 30 and she was 10 years older than me, so I was only 20 years old and it was a shock. Like I didn't expect somebody this young to have cancer and when she was diagnosed, it really opened my eyes to how young people can actually be to get this terrible disease. And she fought hard. She was quite the fighter. And um, she kept going back and forth. But when she was first diagnosed, the doctor that she went and saw said, oh, you only have two years to live. You know, there's really nothing you could do. That's it. And she was like, you know, F this. I'm going to fight. (laughs) I'm going to get a second opinion. So she went and got a second opinion. And this doctor just fought for her and gave her all of this new treatment. And she tried all this new treatment and you know, just kept taking different medications and kept taking different drugs and, and, you know, just kept fighting and would never give up and just, you know, went to chemo and did all this stuff. And, and then she was in remission. I believe it was maybe for a year and a half. And then the cancer came back. And um, as she put it, it came back with vengeance. And she just kept fighting. And I think she had a um, um, a single mastectomy. And then was in remission again, and then it went to her liver, and it was just awful when it went there, and she just had lumps everywhere, and they couldn't, she didn't qualify for a transplant, and it just was everywhere. Like, they couldn't even take a part of it out. It was just everywhere. And then um, from there, I believe she went into remission again, but then it came back, and then it spread to her bones. Yeah. Wow. What hospital was she at? Was she uh, the, were you guys both in the West Coast this time? Yeah, um, we were, oh, I don't remember where she was. I know that she was in San Jose, and then she was in, it was it was in the Bay Area, but it was, okay. she just went to a bunch of different hospitals. I think she ended up on El Camino Hospital, which is um, like Santa Clara, kind of Mountain View area. Um, so that's kind of where she, she ended up and ended up passing away there. So, so, you, so you guys were very close, and you, heard, yeah. you were with her through this entire journey. Which yeah, well, when I found it, out she kept going back in and out of the hospital, I came home from Nashville, and I just said, you know, I have to be here. So I came home, this was the sh- last year, I came home like end of July and stayed home pretty much through the, like, the end of September and was just with her throughout the whole thing. Wow. Wow, so you were already, uh, you had gone, before, like you said, when she first got sick, you had gone, you had made your way to Nashville as a songwriter, and mm-hmm. had you started writing, because we've got some songs, I mean, it sounds like she was really a tremendous inspiration for you in your songwriting as well. Had you started writing these songs kind of while she was still alive? Did she get to hear the stuff that you had written? Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely made sure that she was able to hear it. Um, I was very adamant about, once I wrote them for her, I got them recorded so that she could hear them, and... Um, yeah, throughout her whole struggle, I've written songs for her about, you know, strength and fighting, and, you know, I think we're going to list a one called Fight, actually, and it just, that was one of the ones that inspired me the most from her, because she never gave up, and she just kept fighting, and she didn't care what she had to do, but she was going to survive, 
And who else did she have around her? Were her parents right there by her side? In addition to you, you sound like you were an incredible support for her. Yeah, well, it was uh, my my parents are also her godparents, and so they were there. And then my sister, who was also very close to her, and then my sister's boyfriend, and and um, and then her dad was with her, and then my uncle Phil, her her our uncle was also there for her, and she had a younger sister, and then her other two sisters. I mean, she just had a great support team with her. Um, her mom had passed away, I think about ten years ago. Um, which we think from cancer too. I mean, she was sick with a bunch of different things, so we're not really sure. But she, she just had a great support team around her and a great, you know, core group of people that really loved her and were there for her. We yeah. haven't even mentioned your cousin's name. Tell us her name. <laughs> Paula. Yeah. Paula Verna. Paula Verna. Right. Paula Verna. Yeah. Interestingly enough, um, going back to we've mentioned this now with all three guests. Um, we were they were made aware of us through the Young Survival Coalition's. Uh, C4YW conference in 2010. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, I, that's where we went. It was in Atlanta, right? Yes, it was in 2010. It was yeah. Atlanta. That's I was correct. at the one in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. may have met you then. I may have met you then because I remember we came to the booth and my cousin All was just raving about you guys and looked you up and made me, when we were in the hotel room, I remember this, she made me look at the website and she's like, look at these guys are awesome. <laughs> we need to get in touch with them. And she just never did and I never did. And then when she passed away, I was like, this is my opportunity. She would have wanted me to do this. I have to contact them. Yeah. No, I was thrilled. Um, yeah, Jennifer very sent cool. me an, an email, and uh, it was terrific. We had a nice back and forth, and uh, and you've obviously had uh, some terrific success as a songwriter. Yeah, it's been going well. <laughs> yeah. Great. Your boy Blake on uh, the Grammys last night. I know he's awesome. He's he's fantastic. So. Well, let's get to we're, let's let's play one of the songs that you wrote for your uh, for your cousin Paula, okay. and we'll get back and chat more about. Uh, your career and, and and a few other things. So what's up? What song's up for us, Matthew? I have three. I have I'm gonna fight next year and just a memory. We can pick any two. Um, let's do just a memory. Let's do that one. Um, you want to set it up? Yeah, I wrote song. this one. I wrote this one um, with Angie Broberg and Carl Uthalt in in Nashville, and my dear dear friend Megan Moreau is singing it. And um, this is actually my cousin Paula. What she told me she wanted to have a song about because. She had a nephew or has a nephew, um, and she and he's very young. He just turned two years old, and she didn't want to be remembered as just a picture on the nightstand. Like, she wanted to be remembered for the love that she gave him, and so I kind of wrote this song about wow. that. Okay. So. I'm not clear. Set it up some more. You <laughs> <laughs> really want me to No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so is this from an album, or is this just a single? No, this is just a single. Um, this the songs are going to be available soon on iTunes, and people can go and download them, and a portion of the proceeds are going to go to breast cancer research. Um, so for now, they're they're just as is, and, you know, I just raw form, and I just wanted people to just hear it and kind of feel the emotion that I put into it from my and cousin. You're and singing, you're singing on this? You no, wrote no, no, no. I wrote okay. it, but my friend Megan is singing it. Megan is singing okay. She yeah. only wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> I just wrote it. I was yeah. just the talent behind it. But. All right, so this is this is just a memory. Leave my picture on the dresser, keep my name in conversation like I'm still here. Let my Stay wrapped around you, don't you go and just 
song. Wow. That was awesome. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's not a real audience, by the way. <laughs> oh, man. What an, <laughs> ama- what an amazing uh, tribute to your cousin. Extraordinary. I mean, just to, to leave something like that for her, it's just, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I promised her that I would spoil her nephew, and then now her sister, which her sister was pregnant with her second child when Paula passed away, so she wasn't able to meet her um, before she was born. I think they maybe met in passing, like as Paula was dying and, you know, the baby was coming in. I, I don't know. It's yeah. possible. But, but she never got to physically meet her on this earth. And um, But I promised Paula that I would spoil her nephew and now her niece, and... I intend to do so. So Francesca and Jacob are going to get extremely spoiled by their cousin Jenny. So <laughs> Awesome. 
What did you find that, that uh, Paula kind of most leaned on you for as a co-survivor and a caregiver? Um, mostly, I mean, she was like my big sister and my best friend. So, I mean, she would call me at all hours of the night knowing I'm a night owl. So if she was up at 4 o'clock in the morning, she would call me. You music and business people, you're always up all night. Yes. Yeah, we really are. <laughs> I, sleep till, I sleep till noon, and I go to bed at 4 a.m. usually. So, um, But, yeah, no, she would call me at all hours of the night, and we would just talk about the most random things, about trips we would take or want to take. And we both love, love Disneyland. And so we, she would always talk about going back to Disneyland and, you know, just talk about the most random things. And, and I still have messages on my phone from her that says that she just appreciates me appreciated me always being there for her when she just oh. needed to talk about nothing. She didn't want to talk about cancer. She didn't want to talk about how she was sick. She just wanted to talk about normal things that people talk about. And every time she would talk to somebody, it would be about her cancer or something. And so that's what I, I mean. I kind of felt when I talked to her, too, I, I didn't want to come to the realization that she was sick. And so I kind of ignored it, too. So it was kind of for both of us to kind of, you know, step out of that world a little bit and, and just talk about something else. Yeah. Well, great. That's uh, what an amazing, what an amazing uh, person for her to have, you know, in her life to be able to have somebody that can kind of take her out of that world and yeah. and and a contemporary of hers also and and yeah. and blood. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And what's so funny is the past when she first got sick when she was thirty, and then all the way up until probably the beginning of two thousand eleven, she never looked sick. No. Like she never looked like she was suffering. She never looked like anything. But then. I remember I came home one time, I think it was maybe the beginning of 2011, and I just, when she she came over to our house for dinner, and when she left, I just broke down to my mom. I said, she looks sick. Like, yeah. she does not look good. And that's when I knew that something was happening, and, you know, she was starting to get weaker, and she was starting to sleep more all the time, and it was just, it was really, really hard to go through. Jennifer, this is James. Can you talk about the writing process for this song? What What was that like for you? And is it? I'm wondering. Is it? Is it started? I'm going to add on to that. Okay. Is it more difficult for you when you're writing about somebody so close to you who's going through this illness than writing another, another song? Um, it's a little easier actually to write about things that are are hit closer to home than other things. So if I go through, let's say, a personal breakup or something, that's going to be easier for me to write about what a bastard that guy was versus if I just heard from somebody else about their relationship with a person. So, I mean, it was, it was a lot easier to draw on emotion from having a firsthand experience. Um, and normally, uh, I mean, this one, this writing session was pretty standard as far as writing for me goes. You know, you go into a session and, and you just kind of throw ideas around to each other and just kind of see which one will stick that kind of, you know, everybody can agree on to write. And for this particular session, this was just really, really heavy on my heart because I just, I think, come back to Nashville from visiting home and seeing my cousin and talking to her about all this stuff. And, and so I had this idea, and I brought it to them, and all, like, both of them right away said, yes, let's write this. So, I mean, it just, and we wrote it pretty quickly, too. And, and so, I mean, I had part of the first verse already done, I think, um, so, I mean, it just it, usually when songs like that I can relate to more, they, they usually write very quickly. Like that Blake Shelton song, it, I think um, me and Corey Batten, the guy I wrote it with, wrote it in like maybe an hour. So, wow. So, how do you, so do you throw down, you throw down the lyrics and the music, or what's, what's kind of your forte? Where does it sort of begin with you? 
Um, my forte is is strongly lyrics, but I can do everything. Like I, of course I you can. Yeah, <laughs> I don't write with an instrument when I write songs, only because I feel like I think more complicated than I can play. So I usually just if somebody else is in the room that's like you know a great musician, then I usually let them play, or we just write it a cappella or something. But um, my favorite thing to write is the lyrics, and I love the the quirky phrasing and the melodies and everything. But my favorite thing are the words. Yeah. I hate writing the words. I was a concert pianist before I got sick, um, and I got into USC film school to write film scoring. So I never really was a lyricist. I was always like an underscoring, you know, film soundtrack kind of composer. But I really always admire people that write the lyrics. Um, do you write the lyrics first, or do you write the music first, or do you write them um, at the same time? It really just depends. I come up with ideas all the time. Like every day I'm like, you know, waking up in the middle of the night to write something down, but it, it's Mostly for me, the lyrics come first when it's my own idea. But sometimes, like, I'll have to record myself in my phone or something when I come up with lyrics and a melody together that I have an idea for. So it just it varies. I'm very complicated. And how, <laughs> how many? How many? And what instruments do you play? Um. Well, I don't brag about playing She's any. She's gonna say all of them. Yeah. I could play percussion pretty well. Um. <laughs> I play a little bit guitar, a little bit of piano, but like I said, nothing to brag about. So Yeah. Um, all right, so let's get to another song of yours here that you sent also okay. that uh, is a tribute to your cousin Paula. Yeah, this one is a, um, it's called Fight, and it is, I wrote this, I think when my cousin told me that her cancer had come back, um, and I was just so angry, and I was like, you cannot lose this fight. Like, you need to keep fighting. And so I brought this to my two friends. I wrote it with Zach Bilo and Jeremy Busey, and um, our friend Sammy Moore, is, she's singing it. And um, But it's just an anthem, almost, of never giving up. And, you know, of course, I wrote it geared towards cancer, as if the singer of the song is talking to cancer, saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to defeat you. Right. Um, but, I mean, it's one of those songs that could be taken about anything. So. All right, well, this is Fight. Here we go.
Love it. Two for two. All right, we, we're we're running out of time here, but we can. Uh, before we wrap things up, I can't let you go without just talking about the Grammys last night. <laughs> um, and um, I gotta say, I actually I loved the tribute to Glenn Campbell. Talking a little country here. It was. It was really, really good. It was really good. Um, I love Blake. He's just amazing at everything he sings and everything he does. He's just incredible. I'm so honored that he got to sing my song. And can I just um, mention that Lisa is wearing rhinestones right now? That's awesome. <laughs> You're so southern. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe maybe um, Blake will wear a, a stupid cancer wristband. Exactly. Hey, if you guys get me some, I'll, I'll pass them out. But I wanted to mention, too, that if um, people go and like me on my Facebook page, the first 100 likes will get a free download of one of the songs. Nice. Oh. Um, we're going to offer um, all three of the songs that I sent you. We didn't get to play um, the other one, but um, the one we didn't get to play next um, year. Next year, yeah, that one is going to be offered as a free download for the first 100 likes on my Facebook page. Been there. And and then we are going to fight and just a memory and. Um, Next year is also going to be offered on iTunes soon. So awesome. Um, and then now I'm just hip to Twitter. I just got a Twitter account, so I don't really know how to use it yet. But um, so well, we'll get your mailing address. We'll ship you out a bag of swag, and you could be out some swag. I love the one that has like the middle finger going up at the cancer. Oh, we got we got plenty of those. You like those? I love those. I have one of those at home that I wear, so it's awesome. I love those. Great. We'll 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 ship you out a bunch of stuff. We'll hook you up. Uh, awesome. So great! So keep on uh, doing your thing and continue more success. You got more stuff coming down the pike. For do um, you think you'll continue working with Blake, or you just kind of see um, you write your songs so. and you see who picks them up? Yeah, I mean that's kind of the goal is just to kind of see who picks them up. But I have a lot of stuff waiting in the wings right now that are actually pretty cool. So I'll have to keep you guys posted. And I might actually be in New York soon. So if I am, then I'll look you guys oh, up. Come and by. Come by. Oh, lunch on you. Come by. Yeah, the exactly. Exactly. <laughs> McDonald's for everyone. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, but, um, well, it was so great to have you on the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. I really awesome. appreciate it. You're, you're, you're doing great work, and, and it's a wonderful tribute uh, to your cousin and the young adult cancer pa- movement. Paula is smiling for sure. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Yes, thank you so much, guys. All right, Jennifer Aiden, everybody. Thank you. Great song. Really high quality, good stuff, really good stuff. All right, let's get out of here, folks. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, everybody, that is tonight's show, number 212. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our in-studio and on-air guests, Kenny Kane, James Manning, the invenerable Christine Miss Randino, Elizabeth Eppelsheimer, Soup Lader, and Jennifer Aiden. Join us next week, Monday, February 20th. Topic will be cancer politics. I have a feeling there'll be a certain organization that begins with a K that's going to creep up into that conversation. Angela Wall is going to be with us. She's the communication manager at Breast Cancer Action. 
And our friend Melinda Hennenberg, returning champ, breast cancer survivor, and a writer for the Washington Post. Uh, she just founded a new uh, women's blog. She was the founder of Politics Daily. Right. And uh, She the People, that's her new blog. She the People. On the Washington Post. She'll be with us. And in the Survivor Spotlight, Katie Donahue. She's a young adult survivor of osteosarcoma, and she's a nurse coordinator at the Stephen D. Hassenfeld Center. So join us for that, Cancer Politics, next Monday. If you've missed any of our past shows, all 211 of them, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.com or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck. On behalf of Lisa Bernhard, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week. Good night, everybody.